Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Rethinkers podcast. My name is Carolina Kalin, and today we'll be talking about trees. As many of you may already know, tree planting campaigns are a very popular solution to climate change. You've probably all heard slogans such as, buy a tea, plant a tree. And while the planting of trees sounds easy enough as a solution to climate change, the reality is unfortunately not quite so simple. Many tree planting campaigns do fail, and when they fail, they impact the local communities they're implemented in in very negative ways. Recently, I've read a very interesting article discussing the pitfalls and limitations of such tree planting campaigns. And I've had a chance to sit down virtually with two of the scientists who worked on that paper, and those are Devya Gupta and Vijay Ramprasad. As we spoke, they were both in India. During our conversation, you'll learn about some of the important ecological services that forests provide. And you'll also learn about why it is so challenging to successfully plant trees in order to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. And perhaps most importantly, Divya and Vijay share their thoughts with us on how we could rethink the way we go about planting trees, be it by including local communities in projects, by focusing on protecting existing forests instead of planting new ones, or simply by taking a good look at our own carbon footprints. I've learned a tremendous amount from Divya and Vijay during our conversation, and I hope that you will as well. Do you both maybe want to introduce yourself uh, to listeners? Maybe you want to go first, uh, Divya, and then we switch over to Vijay. Sure. Thank you so much, Carolina, for uh, this really kind invitation. I'm uh, really happy and honored to be part of this podcast. So my name is uh, Divya Gupta, and uh, currently I'm transitioning into this tenure-track position at uh, State University of New York, Binghamton, in the Environmental Studies Department. And uh, I, have, uh, I have a very interdisciplinary background. I grew up in this small town in the foothills of Himalaya called Dehradun. So I grew up amidst this like really beautiful natural landscape. And I think inevitably that's how I became so um, interested and also genuinely passionate about nature. And I did not realize like, you know, to be honest, I did not realize my love or my passion for nature until I moved to Delhi. So I went to Delhi for my, for my undergraduate and my master's my master's degree and uh, it was only then that you know I realized how much I valued and also like you know I missed being around you know natural uh, landscapes and uh, nature in general and uh, inadvertently when I look back it was purely coincidental the choices that I made I mean for my undergraduate I studied botany and, and, and for my master's I studied environmental studies and both these degrees they required a certain level of coursework to just understand the, the ecosystem and diversity, not just faunal, but also like the floral diversity and the interactions and things like that. And then I just like, you know, starting getting more and more interested. And uh, it was only when I was doing my master's uh, dissertation, my field work for the master's dissertation, which was in Corbett National Park, where I was looking at the impact of uh, plantation on vegetation diversity, structure and composition so it was like a purely like an ecological study that was the experience where I got first-hand experience of 
the roles that policies, politics, and people in general play. And then again, that experience was a realization that <laughs> unless we do not take into consideration the human perspective or the, the social and the political perspective of the environment, it is, it is really hard for all the research to, to translate to having some kind of impact. So with that curiosity, I started looking for uh, an opportunity to, to you know, explore these questions that I had about these human-environment interactions, how they operate, and the different questions about like you know, the role of state actors and the non-state actors. And I was really lucky that I got this opportunity to, to pursue a doctoral uh, program with uh, Dr. Thomas Coons, who is a political scientist. And uh, Thomas Coons is a former advisee of Eleanor Ostrom, who's done a lot of work on like, you know, collective action and collaboration. And uh, so that was like a really neat opportunity for me to, to really engage in the theoretical uh, aspects of what it means for people to come together in, and, and part participate or not participate, get excluded in the decision-making process regarding like natural resource governance. Yeah, I mean, I can go on and on to talk about my background, but then... Uh, uh, long story short, I mean, I've, I've continued to work in the area of like you know, natural resource governance. Um, so a part of my research looks into the implementation of these decentralized forest management policies and laws. And then part of my research, uh, especially my recent collaboration, looks at the intersecting impacts of climate and COVID in the rural population in the mid-Himalayan region of India and Nepal. So uh, I will stop there and... Uh, yeah, thank you so much for the introduction and the congratulations yes, on uh, the tenure track uh, position. That must be quite exciting. Uh, do you want to switch over to you, Vijay? Do you want to introduce yourself uh, to listeners? Sure. Uh, my name is Vijay Ramprasad. Um, I'm a senior fellow at a research NGO, also based in Dharazoon, called Cedar, and a visiting faculty at Ashoka University in Delhi. I finished my PhD in 2017 and my master's in 2011. And before that, I was at the Center for Ecological Sciences in Bangalore, and which is where I was introduced to the social ecological uh, interactions, though it was not called all of that at that point when I started out. And my introduction to this kind of a blending of ecology and, and social aspects was the joint forest management program in India and assessing the impacts of it. And I was thrown into the deep end as a kid right out of school. And I had to like make do with whatever I knew because we weren't taught social sciences as part of ecological sciences, right? Even now it, it continues to be, those barriers continues to, continues to exist. And even though it's coming down, um, so social sciences became a part of what I was trying to learn as uh, applied to governance of forests, as governance of commons in general, and governance of private resources. And based on that experience, I carried on to Michigan for my master's when, um, when Austin, whom uh, Divya mentioned, published an influential paper on a generalized framework for thinking about these interactions between social and ecological systems in science. So it seemed like all of us were waiting for that paper to come out, right? And even though we did not know it at that point, 
it has turned out to be one of the important pieces of scholarship, including for me and as many other researchers, right? Because it served to link these three big pieces, the social, the ecological, and the interactions between them in a very clear, concise manner. And that clarity in thought gave impetus to my PhD as well about how to link uh, ecological systems in whichever way we can imagine it creatively. And for me, it was agricultural systems and agroforestry systems and the, the combination of agriculture and forestry systems as related to people who are managing them, which are, are like using them or working in such lands who are farmers or pastoralists or uh, laborers or landless workers. All of those people interact with land very differently. And the kind of lenses that are given to us through scholarship and science to, to look at these interactions are different. They are complex, they are complicated, they are messy. And all of these problems uh, are very challenging to address with some solution or one solution. So a panacea approach did not work or still does not work. That is what is motivating most of my research. And I continue to study some of these interventions that governments take, uh, similar to what Divya is doing in, in terms of policy research, impacts of COVID on people, uh, thinking through some of the aspects of what makes these people, these local and locally marginalized people more vulnerable to these impacts, including climate change, policies, the changing world of governance. Uh, that's where I am at. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me here and congrats to Divya. And yeah, nice meeting you, Carolina. Yeah, thank you so much for introducing yourself, Vijay. That's quite interesting how both of you kind of uh, moved from focusing more on the ecological sciences and then uh, getting the inputs on the political sciences. Do you maybe want to say a few words uh, why you find it really important that we bridge the gap between environmental or ecological science and social sciences? Sure. Um, I think the, the, the disciplinary divide is something that has been thought through quite a lot. Uh, even from the United States research organizations or research institutions, which has been the world leader in overall thinking through some of these interlinked issues right of social and ecological sciences and that interdisciplinary thought has been there for a very long time but the redundancies that come with big wheels associated with large universities large uh, uh, institutions that that undertake research or conduct research some of those challenges exist in bringing that thought process of interdisciplinarity and translating it into action right and it is not that there is a shortage of interdisciplinary thought. There is a lot. And if you look through history, some of the pioneers of our field who think through uh, social and ecological sciences together, they could be uh, ethnographers in anthropology. They could be physicists studying plant transpiration. They could be governance scholars thinking about sociology and political science. All of them have been interdisciplinary in, in their in their work. It is just that the the current systems of education in place are yet to catch up to some of these advanced scholarship. 
produced by such people. Um, and this gap is reducing and quite rapidly. So um, Divya, I could include her and me as some of the last batch of people who did not have this interdisciplinary education, but learned or walked into it. These days, all my students are inherently, they're learning many, many concepts together, which, which lends to interdisciplinary thought by default, which is very good to know. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah sorry, Divya. Do you want to say something? Do you want to add no, something? No, you can, then go, I can ahead. Go, go ahead. Okay. I just wanted to reiterate like some of the things that Vijay said that, yes, uh, the gap between the ecological sciences and the social sciences that you mentioned, it had been there. And it's unfortunately, it's just the way the academia works, that there are these disciplinary silos and everybody's sort of like, you know, operating in these silos. But over time, that gap has narrowed. And I think one of the main reasons that has been possible because it's just been very evident that how these critical environmental issues, then they need an interdisciplinary lens. There's no one discipline that could really like explain the way these problems are and the way one can think about going about like you know, addressing these problems. So I think it's been a, a realization that has been there for a long time and uh, so that's why like a, a lot of like interdisciplinary, not just courses, but also like, you know, research is happening to, to especially like, you know, uh, understand and also address uh, these uh, critical environmental problems. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I find that very nice uh, how you, Vijaya, mentioned that an interdisciplinary approach uh, is now becoming more common uh, in education as well. I feel like a lot of the environmental problems we see, the way they're often communicated in media tends to be a bit, uh, I guess, overly simplified and not focusing enough on all the complexities behind the problematics. Now in the podcast, we'll be focusing also quite a bit on tree planting campaigns. I think tree planting campaigns are uh, one of those issues where the public discourse uh, could be broadened to including uh, more of these uh, complexities. And when I think of tree planting campaigns, uh, what comes to my mind quite quickly is the discourse behind uh, carbon offsets and carbon sinks, because I feel like uh, there is quite a movement towards wanting to offset uh, emissions, uh, etc. And many individuals do care about taking action, but then you might hear, uh, yeah, you might hear certain companies or media advertising for tree planting campaigns, you, you might feel like, wow, that's such an easy and uh, amazing solution to climate change. I want to participate. But if you're not aware of the uh, kind of the complexities behind the system, it can also uh, backfire, um, I guess. And to pave the course uh, for listeners towards uh, our com conversation kind of into uh, tree planting campaigns and uh, reforestation efforts, um, I'd like to maybe first ask you if you could explain the concept behind carbon sinks and carbon offsetting uh, to listeners? Yeah, I mean, carbon offsetting in a very layperson language, uh, Carolina, is, I mean, it refers to this like an you know, action that is taken to compensate for the emission in one place by doing like in, in this context of tree plantation, like by planting trees in some other place. And uh, I mean, it's, it's an investment in climate mitigation projects where the idea is that the ton of carbon that is sequestered in one place is equal to the carbon emission happening at some other place. And it's also important to know that tree plantations is not only 
way by which these uh, carbon offsetting is happening. It's, it's clearly like, you know, becoming one of the concerning and one of the prominent ways just because of the, the resources that are involved and also like in the implication that these projects have. Um, so these, these uh, you know, plantation, the tree plantation campaigns, they are becoming one of the prominent ways by uh, carbon offsetting is happening. The concern, the biggest concern is that, you know, they're, they're either replacing natural habitat and natural ecosystems or they're not being done well and they're not, there's no proper like you know, monitoring or follow-up. Um, so, so that has been like, you know, the, the growing concern about these uh, plantations, but we can chat more about that later as well. Yeah. Do you maybe want to say a few words as well on what the kind of the positive ecological services um, are that trees can provide and that we will sort of guide listeners uh, who might not have a, a strong ecological background so they will first under understand oh why are people actually pushing for tree planting campaigns like uh, what are the positive aspects and then later we'll go into uh, into discussing the limitations i mean just the process you know uh the fact that these trees they fix the atmospheric carbon dioxide and we have photosynthesis it, they convert it to oxygen which literally is like their sense of life was mostly used as a narrative or, or a way to promote tree plantations. And uh, so that's like you know, one of the key ecosystem services. But in addition to that, there are a lot of ecosystem services that trees provide or forests they provide. They serve as important habitats for like the various floral and faunal species. And they create these microclimates for these ecosystem dynamics to operate. And in addition to that, forests also serve as an important space for people who live in and around, uh, you know, these, these areas uh, and, you know, these forests, they not only form an important you know, part of the lives of these people, but also, you know, livelihoods. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, these are, I mean, at the top of my mind, the ecosystem services that I can think of, but Vijay, do you want to add uh, anything to this? Sure. Um, so there are quite a few things here, right? So you can think about trees by themselves, or you can think about the broader landscape they are in, and which is the land that they are around, right? So there's a question of what the land can do and what the trees themselves can do. So it offers a much different uh, or broader way of looking at what trees are doing currently and how they can benefit human society in general. In addition to what has been said already, there are a lot of uh, functional traits that each tree has or a group of trees have, which is a community of trees that are growing together in a habitat or the diversity of trees on a piece of land, uh, which generally increases in stand over time, right? So as time increases, the diversity generally increases. So when you think through all of these issues, the kinds of functional traits that a diverse plantation or a diverse forest can bring are innumerable. There are different trophic levels. There are different uh, transfers of energy and different transfers of uh, elements. If you've heard about the biogeochemical cycles, which is the transfer of some of these elements through the earth and atmosphere and soil and water and land, land and forests are an important part of it. And so carbon is just one of those elements that are cycling through this. And forests have a important role to play when you think about some of these nutrient cycling, which includes some of the very important uh, nutrients like phosphates or nitrogen 
or think about all of those. So it's important to maintain the fertility, the diversity of species, the habitats, the kind of cycles that we are engaged in and the kind of tinkering that we do through plantation activities. And lastly, uh, adding to the livelihood component, bringing in the people in, into the forests now, livelihoods are pretty important to world's people as related to trees and forests and plantations. A recent paper estimated that uh, 295 million people, that is the, the size of the uh, United States population, maybe a decade ago, right? That's the size of people who live near or are dependent on uh, forests and land. So any kind of changes that uh, these plantations or forests or trees incur is going to have some effect on, on livelihoods, the nutrients, the functional traits, the biodiversity, the habitats, and the current systems of living together with, with land systems in general. So there are a lot of benefits, lots of positive benefits that culturally has been very well recognized across the world, right? So I don't, I don't need to reiterate what the benefits of forests are or trees are. People have done it over centuries. If you come down to South of India or even like North of India, maybe even, yeah, there are cases in Europe, across Southeast Asia, uh, Southern America, you will find places like sacred groves or protected forests in Africa, all of these places have explicitly acknowledged the benefits, the positive aspects of what trees, forests, and land can do for us. And science is generally in agreement with all of these aspects. The question now is, what do we do about the impacts of climate change? And what is the role of such forests, trees, and lands in this, our, in this effort to deal with impacts of climate change? Yeah, thank you so much uh, for sharing that. It's really interesting how both of you talk uh, about the human factor when we talk about trees. Populations or uh, communities uh, that are really intertwined uh, with ecosystems and uh, forest systems. Um, and I think that kind of also naturally brings us to uh, some of the kind of pitfalls and limitations that exist uh, in the scope of uh, tree planting campaigns. Um, do you maybe want to talk about what some, some of the main limitations are of tree planting campaigns, the way they're commonly uh, implemented? I can take a stab and then maybe Tibia can, can take off from there. I think for me, the, the top level questions of tree planting remain unanswered. And that is, the I think, the cause of some of these symptoms that we see is the pitfalls of, uh, of tree planting, right? So... The, the, the questions that remain unanswered are, where are these plantations going to be done? Who are the people living there? What are the costs that they will have to bear if these projects come about? So if, if we do not answer some of those questions, we will end up with several challenges, several pitfalls. And the converse is also true. If you are able to answer these questions, some of these pitfalls will no longer remain a pitfall, right? So they will become much more beneficial to those communities or ecosystems that they're that they're being acted upon. So there are both the flip side to it. And the the motivation for this paper is to highlight some of these pitfalls so that we don't do this, 
so that we can correct it, right? And some of the top level things are where it is planted, if it is in a grassland, if it is in an already used system or land that is has insecure rights uh, that people hold um, or on agroforestry land or on land that is already being used by people. Um, those kinds of areas lend to a little bit of a conflict with the people and existing uses, existing land uses, existing biodiversity. So that is what one of the top level challenges of tree planting are. But on the flip side, the positive thing is tree planting is fairly straightforward to do. It's like, it's simpler than asking or teaching somebody how to wash their clothes, right? You dig a hole, you stick a sapling in it. Uh, how difficult is that? But if you think about it a little bit more, the difficulties become apparent. Like, okay, so how, where do I dig this hole? On whose land is it? What plant do I, what sapling do I plant here? Who's going to take care of it? What if it dies? Who's going to pay for it? Um, all of those questions need to be answered. And when will these benefits come to be realized? And that's what we talk about in a, in a much more concrete way in this way. Yeah, I wanted to add to that, that, you know, for me, when I think about these large scale tree plantations, what really strikes me is that there's this emphasis, I mean, for people who root for these tree plantations, there's this emphasis on how these many billion trees or trillion trees can sequester, like, you know, these many like tons of carbon and things like that. But I was always really confused by the fact that why isn't there an emphasis on on protecting the existing natural ecosystems. I mean, uh, yes, these plantations, as they seem very simple and you know, they, they, they were uh, also viewed as a cost-effective uh, measure, but then it, it's more cost-effective to protect the, the natural ecosystems that we have versus thinking of like you know, replacing or, or like doing these uh, artificial plantations and for me, that was something which was fascinating because I felt that, you know, why can't we just like you know, focus on what we have versus doing something new? And in this pitfalls paper, one of the pitfalls was that we highlight is also this focus on um, protecting or safeguarding the existing uh, natural ecosystems versus focusing on finding these lands where the plantations can be done and things like that. And why do you feel like there is more emphasis on tree planting campaigns uh, than on protecting uh, existing uh, ecosystems? Why do, you think, why do you think that's the case? I think both of them have um, a lot of attention, have received a lot of attention. But the pace at which tree planting has received some of that attention goes back to the media attention, the, the widespread uh, unanimous support of different stakeholders to tree planting program. Uh, it begins with uh, the bond challenge, and then all the corporations who are supporting it. And then there are these influential papers uh, that are talking about how many trees are on the land and what can be done with another uh, large number of trees on land. So the widespread and unanimous support for tree planting programs also lends to some of the commitments that nations have decided to pledge as part of the Paris Agreement, which seeks to limit atmospheric carbon, atmospheric temperature to less than two degrees change 
So tree planting becomes attractive. And overall, if you look at land-based programs, they offer one of the most safe as well as cost-effective uh, measures. And forestry and reforestation within it is a very important contributor. Almost two-thirds of it comes from re re reforestation, planting, agroforestry, and land-based programs. Yeah, and I would like to add to this, like, you know what, which I just said that a lot of motivation for tree plantation has been via these international meetings and conventions like the Bond Challenge and then the follow-up COPs and Paris Agreement and the INDCs, you know, where the countries are committing that, you know, we are going to like sequester or, or limit our emission, you know, and really like, you know, uh, setting goals. And, and tree plantations, like on paper, it's a more tangible way to demonstrate that this is how we've gone about storing carbon and we, we planted these many trees and who knows what the reality is. But then at least on, like on the paper, they can, they, they can show and they can uh, validate whatever claim that they are making by, by showing like oh, we uh, implemented these many programs or projects and this is how it happened. And, and I also wanted to mention that a lot of uh, the plantation or the tree plantation campaign is driven by the powerful actors who have a lot of power and also money. So a lot of like, you know, these, these tree plantation campaigns are pretty much also throwing money at the problem that here's the money, you take the money and, you know, you do the carbon sequestration for us. And, and that is also problematic because as, as we you know discussed earlier, that there are these issues of inequality and then, you know, hierarchy and political dynamics that also kind of like is, is there. Yeah, that's very interesting with what you mentioned about it, it being more tangible. Like maybe it seems more proactive on paper to say, oh, we've planted this and that many trees than to say, oh, we've protected uh, this or that ecosystem. Like it might just seem more proactive and that makes for kind of better media, better uh, publication, etc. Um, many listeners might ask themselves, so what are the benefits of sort of protecting forests and protecting existing ecosystems as opposed to... Uh, planting uh, new trees like why should we uh, focus uh, on protecting what already exists uh, why is that more beneficial than uh, planting a new forest could you maybe say a few words uh, there i mean the most straightforward response to that question is that a lot of these tree plantations there's a lot of uncertainty that is involved there is no way to know to what extent these projects will be will sustain and how to what extent they will be successful. Uh, studies have shown there is a high rate of failure in this uh, in such projects, and that is, and that's for a lot of reason. I mean, there's lack of monitoring and there's lack of follow up, and so uh, there is a lot of uncertainty. And then the other reason is that these these plantations are also less secure in terms of you know carbon sequestration. So those are the two things that I can think of you know, as a critique uh, for why these plantations are probably not an efficient way of thinking about carbon storage. But Vijay, do you want to add anything? I think of it a little bit differently. For me, all of these are social constructs. Tree planting programs is a social construct. Um, the goals that we set are social constructs that we all agree upon as a world, as uh, a part of this larger framework of, of nations, as part of the United Nations framework on 
uh, and climate change. You know? So all of these are social constructs. So restoration, tree planting, either you are restoring land to some uh, imagined past of that land, or you are protecting that land for what it exists right now, or from some perceived threats, or you're planting new trees to bring it up to speed to some perceived construct of what this nature or plant or, or forest should look like, right? So these social constructs lead us to how we value things, how different societies, different nations, different regions in the world value things. And what Divya was mentioning earlier is the disparity in the valuation of some of these. So when there is this disparity, what happens is the, the, the regions or nations or people whose values do not find a place at the table to voice what is important for them, which value is important for them, creates a trade-off. And what this does is it creates implementation challenges, monitoring challenges, overall leading to either limited effects or negative effects of these outcomes, of these interventions, especially tree planting interventions. But if you're careful through that, tree planting, just like restoration and conservation, they're all not mutually exclusive. At this point where we are in, if you think about the world, and where we are headed, it is all solutions on board. We cannot throw away tree planting either, right? Uh, it is every single solution needs to be fixed and all solutions are important. They are not mutually exclusive because somebody says so or somebody doesn't agree with it. We have to make sure that what works in a locality should be understood very well. And that's why some of these either or type problems are easy, just like tree planting to accept, but the either or does not make sense when you think about the larger scale of, of problems that we're dealing with, right? Um, so it's, it's all solutions that are mutually exclusive. All of these are social constructs, which lead to some amount of uh, thinking through values. And when values are in conflict, we lead to some of the problems in attaining the outcomes that everybody agrees upon. Yeah, I find it very inspiring how you talk about uh, values being very important uh, here. And maybe, maybe that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to find a global approach, uh, because there are differences in value and there are misunderstandings. And uh, I think you, Divi, in the very beginning, you mentioned that you're very interested in kind of understanding who participates in, in a system and also who doesn't participate. And I guess that, that ties into sort of understanding someone's values or uh, being aware of who isn't represented at the table and whose values aren't uh, represented and making sure that uh, that those people are also uh, included. Do you maybe want to talk about a specific example on the ground that kind of highlights um, sort of these issues we've been talking about uh, or the kind of highlights what ecological or social uh, limitations can arise when you design a tree planting campaign that doesn't uh, take into account uh, kind of the local situation on the ground? Because I feel like uh, examples are, are always very helpful to better understand uh, the concept uh, or the theory we're talking about. 
Sure. Um, we've been working on this question for a while, since 2017, and even much before that. And the, uh, the example that I bring to you is from the northern state of India. Um, it's called Himachal Pradesh. Um, it's, uh, it sits at the border of India, Pakistan, and China. And very biodiverse, lots of variation in terms of altitude, all the way to the Himalayas and, and going down to the plains. So there's a lot of variation, and that's where we are, we are conducting the study since 2017, and much before that, for some of the people who have been working there. So cumulatively, there's about two decades worth of research to, to figure out some of these social ecological interactions surrounding forest sector. Here, we, we were fortunate to have been funded by NASA to study what the impacts of tree planting programs have been on rural livelihoods of communities living in this region. So uh, one of the questions that I was asked by a visa interviewee, uh, it was, um, what does NASA have to do with, with tree planting? Don't they know the trees are all good? That was the question I got. So I had one minute to convince this person that yes, it matters, that NASA has to know where the trees are located, how you can sense from the space through advanced technology about the growth of these trees and what some of that growth indicates through to livelihood patterns that we observe. So there's a lot of uh, technology complex issues that, are, that we were studying, which brought in a lot of uh, scientists trained in different disciplines from remote sensing scientists, political scientists, geographers, political so all kinds of, uh, most of the diversity of people who are working on social ecological systems were represented in this research. And this research, we, we sampled 2,400 households and close to 2,000 plantations to understand what the impacts were. This has been conducted over the last four decades by the Indian government. So we are working on land that is owned, stewarded, managed by, by the Indian government. Uh, they are not private forests. They are not community forests. They're uh, managed by the Indian government through its administration arm called the Forest Department. So these, these plantations have been planted since the last four decades. That's what we have been studying. But the colonial forestry dates back all the way 150 years or so. So uh, even in Germany, uh, from where some of these scholars came to India to, to teach the colonial government about tree plantations and planting trees, some of those still exist as remnants of the forest policies. So we were trying to understand what are these policy sediments that are impacting rural livelihoods? How are some of those policies that were made to plant certain species in certain places? How have they continued to date? And what is it, what is the relevance of that policy to the current discussions on nature-based solutions, carbon offsets, and climate mitigation, and how it impacts some of the rural communities. And what we found, um, which, is, which is now published in uh, Nature Sustainability, um, we found that there is a limited impact. There's not an overwhelming positive impact of tree plantations on rural livelihoods. And what we found was rather surprising because not many people from the 2,400 households are dependent on forest. 
um, on forests for their livelihood, which means that the livelihoods has changed from what some of our uh, hypothesis leads us to believe. There are changing aspirations underground. There are changing um, livelihood opportunities. Inflation is pretty high. Policies are changing. Aspirations are changing. So forest-based livelihoods, the importance of it has decreased. But that does not mean that people are not using forests. They are not using plantations. People in our communities, which we studied across 60 panchayats, which are uh, local governments, uh, where these 2,400 households are located, they still continue to use forests, but it just doesn't make a big enough impact to depend for an entire livelihood, right? So if somebody is making $100,000 a year, that doesn't compare with a livelihood impact to a forest-based livelihood, right? That's not a fair comparison. But other studies have shown from the wild, worldwide data set that the contribution of forests to livelihood is not more than a third, about 28%, 30% is about as much as in the best case it is contributing to. So we should temper our expectations of what is going on. And that's some of what we learned. And we continue to learn through uh, another, there is a series of papers that are being produced through this one NASA funded study. Another study found that the vulnerable livelihoods, such as those that are not mainstream livelihoods, like technology-based, software-based, uh, or engineering, or advanced, that include advanced degrees, right? Like uh, landless labor or pastoralism. Those are the ones, those are the marginal livelihoods that are likely to be impacted by tree planting programs because they derive a lot of positive benefits as well. And any restriction on their ability to use these plantations will have adverse impact on such threatened livelihoods. Uh, that's something that we found. And yeah, uh, I think I'll, I was, I'll take a, a stop here, perhaps ask mm -hmm. uh, together. I mean, um, I also wanted to sort of like go back to your previous response, Vijay, where you talked about that, how the solutions like the plantations and the restoration, they are the solutions. And there are times when you need to figure a way to make those solutions work. And that just like, you know, reminded me some of the work that the colleagues I know in India are doing, wherein they're working with the communities. Like for example, uh, one of our colleagues, um, her name is Aparajita Datta. She's been extensively like, you know, working in the Northeastern part of India and, uh, so although she's an ecologist, but then she realized that uh, there are uh, areas in the, the field where she's working, they, they need to be restored. And uh, so she's using her ecological training and she's collaborating with other scholars and also collaborating with people in restoring small patches of lands. And to my interaction with her, what I learned is that when you think about restoration, it cannot be conducted on a large scale, it has always like it's always done, or it should be done in a small scale, and it's and and it takes a long time because there's a lot of like you no know, trial and error, and that's how you figure what works in what context. So I just wanted to uh, reiterate. I mean, this is not aligns with the response about the work or the research, the emerging research that you talked about. But then I, I wanted to um, highlight that how these solutions. It's it's not that you know plantation is bad or restoration is bad. These are solutions that can be viable 
when there uh, this proper expertise, proper planning, and, and proper uh, stakeholders who are involved involved in implementing those uh, those solutions. So that kind of comes back to what Vijay was saying before, that uh, all solutions can be valid solutions that we might need, but we need to make sure that we implement those solutions uh, holistically by taking into account all the complexities that uh, that kind of surround uh, the given situation. Vijay, just this morning I was reading uh, an article that Divya had sent me about uh, some of your work uh, in the Himalaya that was talking about the Gadi population. And it was sort of mentioning um, how, it, or it was mentioning the impact of certain tree planting uh, efforts on the local population there. Do you want to maybe explain? Uh, to listeners kind of what the situation there was, because I think that would be really helpful for listeners who really don't know much about uh, about sort of ecology to really understand. So, why, you know, why why does all of this kind of theory uh, matter? What, uh, How does it impact, like, the lives of specific people uh, on, the, on the ground? Yes. So, um, when we were conducting this study, we started an internship program as part of an ASRA-funded project, uh, right? And one of our interns came up with this question because um, what is the impact of, of tree plantations on, on gaddis? So for those who don't know what gaddis are, it, they're spelled as G-A-D-D-I, gaddis. There are people, they have a language also called gaddi. They have a, a dog also called gaddi. So there's a whole entire culture surrounding this, this agro-pastoralist group of people who heard sheep and goat up and down the Himalayas. And in, in winter, they come down, summer, they just go stay there. And there's a lot of uh, rich grasses, biodiverse national parks through which they traverse, and different types of land uses that they use to graze uh, their sheep and goat. And this has continued for a, quite a long time. And what we found was tree planting was impacting on all land uses that the Gaddis go through. So if you can imagine a flock of sheep and goat being herded by the shepherd walking on a road or walking across land from the slopes of Himalayas down south, imagine the types of land that they will have to traverse, right? They can be rivers, they can be forests, they can be private land, there can be land that is restricted for people to come in there can be national parks would say stay away you're not welcome you cannot get in here and there can also be common land that, that communities use all these types of lands are used by the Gadi people and what the study showed us was plantations were happening across all of these land uses so tree planting is happening everywhere wherever these guys are moving through including some of the high altitude regions where Science tells us that trees will not grow. Even there, there have been plantations, but the survival rate is very low. So then the question we asked was, um, what are the species that are being planted here? And what are some of these impacts that the Gaddis uh, have felt, right? We found that the, the tree plantations have added to existing threats that Gaddis face. So the Gaddis already face a lot of multitude of threats. Um, uh, which is detailed in the paper. I don't want to go into all the details here, 
but imagine that they are going through a set of challenges, right? And now tree planting efforts is another additional challenge that they need to deal with. And they have dealt with it in a very different way. And agro-pastoralists and migratory pastoralists are highly resilient group of people because they traverse different areas and they, they have learned to be resilient to challenges. And they have responded in various ways. Um, we know that tree plantations have negatively impacted the, the routes, which means they need to take longer routes, uh, which is one of the more straightforward explanations, which is instead of traveling, say, 10 kilometers a day, they are now traversing maybe five kilometers, taking all the uh, turns and you know uh, necessary precautions not to get into a fenced tree planting area in which they are not allowed. And the second is the species mix has changed. Uh, the distribution of species that goats prefer, sheep prefer. Mind you, trees can also be fodder trees. Uh, it just doesn't have to be grasses, right? So the, the herders can cut these branches and feed it, feed their, their, their sheep and goat, uh, right? So there can be um, fodder trees. There can be different types of shrubs that, that the sheep and goats can graze on. That mix has significantly changed. So the health of livestock, the breed of livestock has changed. That is the response. That is the adaptation that Gaddis have taken. They have changed the breeds from more traditional to more hybrid varieties, which are a little bit more healthier and which can grow a little bit more quicker, right? Than the more traditional breeds that are used to a different type of forage. And they've also moved on. They've completely given up on these livelihoods and they've started to become more sedentary in nature. They've started to take up like petty jobs small uh, like shops or like grocery stores or doing some construction business. So there are a host of adaptations that the Gaddis have taken, but they're all not caused by tree planting alone. It's in the mix of a long list of changes that they're facing, but tree planting seems to have accelerated some of these livelihood changes. That's what we found. And in what ways has uh, the new mix of trees that was being planted, in what ways has it impacted the health of uh, livestock? Yeah, so here, the pure pine tree, that's a, it's, a, it's a type of a pine tree. They were planted ex extensively in this region. Even though it is native to some parts of this state, it is not native uh, to, to different altitudes and different ecoregions, right? Pines have been promoted, but they were promoted by the forest department. And what pine does is it, ha it produces these needles. When you hike up a mountain with pine trees, you know how slippery it is and how dangerous it is sometimes when with a thick mat of pine, right? And moving through it is, is fairly challenging. And it is also fire prone. The ecosystem changes into a, a pyrophytic type of a forest where fire is necessary for the species to propagate. So there is even more occurrence because of the dry litter that there is. And in other areas, it has also encouraged invasive species, uh, such as lantana, which is not from India. It is spreading aggressively almost all through India. 
it was bought into India as a shrub, as an ornamental shrub, but now it's like everywhere and they're not edible. And then sheep eat it, sheep and goats eat it. They, they generally don't, but if they do by mistake, like kids and like smaller, uh, yeah, young uh, sheep and goat, if they eat it, then they develop some health issues. And what happens is when there's a breed change or there is a drop in health, uh, it also impacts the trophic levels. Some of the snow leopards, some of the other predator species that, that sometimes prey on uh, sheep and goat, they also are, uh, they become vulnerable to some of these toxins that are ingested by sheep and goat. And there's a large scale die off that was witnessed by one of our uh, respondents who just had to give up on, on, uh, on grazing, right? On migratory grazing. So all of these effects together um, is what we have noticed in that paper and it's detailed there. Yeah, thank you for uh, explaining uh, all of that. I think it's really important to broaden public understanding of uh, exactly situations like that. We talked about, uh, for example, paying for carbon offsetting services uh, earlier, where you might pay for a service and you might feel like, wow, uh, somewhere a new forest will be planted. It's amazing. It will help people. But then on the ground, uh, the situation might be completely different. And as you said, uh, as you just explained, maybe highly complex and also quite problematic. There's a big gap between someone paying, for example, in the West uh, for a certain service and then that impacting uh, a community in an entirely different part of, of the world. There seems to be a big sort of gap of, uh, of information flow uh, there. Do you maybe have any inputs on how we could uh, bridge that gap uh, of information flow uh, between uh, different parts of the world? Sure. I think um, one of the things that... that it's 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 fairly important is if you're a consumer of offsets right say you purchase offsets when you're like flying out somewhere or you bought a new piece of clothing and they have some carbon offsets they say you buy one tea you plant one tree they have all these catchy things going around right okay great i bought a tea i'm going to plant a tree but it, it's a great feeling but the information that we need to ask these providers is where are you going to plant this tree? Are there uh, any unintended negative consequences of me purchasing this tree and you planting that tree somewhere where it is going to create some negative effect, right? So we may, we may want to demand as a consumer that information which is currently missing some of the providers are providing information like, okay, this is where we are planting. This is safe. This land is owned by some person and this person is willing and consented to have this plantation on their land or this community has consented to acknowledge uh, to a fair degree that it is okay. It does not hurt everybody. That information is missing for a consumer and there's a long way to go for us as a consumer society and for marketing and research to provide that information, right? And when you think about it from the other side of the, of the coin, like think about the Gaddis, right? Uh, or some other smallholder farmer in Peru or somewhere. What information do they need about tree planting? How can they influence that decision-making? That also needs to flow 
much more transparently, much more freely, right? So what do the Gaddis know about the UNFCCC? They may, some of them may know, but it is highly unlikely that they will know the nitty gritty details of what offsets are, how they're carrying that information and what their role is in contributing to this larger idea of climate mitigation through tree planting, which is actually affecting them. So there is a lot of information uh, that needs to flow both ways. Uh, it is not just capacity building in the global South regions. There has to be capacity building even in global North regions, where, as you mentioned much earlier in this, in this podcast about how people need to be aware of, right, of where they're going through what they're trying to do and uh, how, what's the role of rich nations, developed nations. That kind of a capacity building has to happen in both ways. Currently, it is happening in a piecemeal approach in one direction, perhaps. Yeah, and I also wanted to add that uh, a lot of these uh, afforestation projects, they target ecosystems in uh, rural areas where uh, people are highly dependent on land and forest resources. You know, in, in, in such cases, these, there are these like you know, large tracts of land that are converted into something which is entirely like, you know, incompatible with not just like the ecosystem that pre-existed, but also the lifestyles of people. And there have been studies that have shown that in such cases, it really impacts the lives of the people in the sense that it results in higher food prices and it puts people at a huge risk of just struggling to survive. And uh, the other uh, point that I wanted to mention is again, like, you know, from one of the recent studies that talked about that, and which kind of like, you know, uh, goes back to this whole question of like, you know, when you think about plantation, where is this plantation happening? So there is definitely this shortage. We're talking about these larger plantation campaigns, but then the land is, there is a, there is a shortage of land where these activities can happen. So there is this like uh, a recent study that talked about it in, in India. They are planning to uh, conduct some tree plantation activities in the bunny grassland. So bunnies are also like, and just like that, these, they are also like you know, pastoral communities. And so the, the natural ecosystem in the area is like, it's a shrubland or a grassland. And uh, so, so there are like you know, these talks about uh, plantation activities and the, the scientists or the ecologists who are working in that region, they are arguing that uh, such plantation campaigns, they do not recognize the, the natural ecosystems. And, and when we talk about ecosystems, it's not just like in forests or trees. It's about these diverse ecosystems that also provide different ecosystem services. Um, so yeah, th those are the two points that I wanted to uh, bring up as well. Yeah, and so for example, when we talk about uh, forests as carbon sinks, if an area has a natural ecosystem that might be more grassland or shrub-based, uh, shrub uh, it might actually be much more beneficial to safeguard that grassland than, than to come in and plant a, a forest that wasn't there. So, Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I think that's really that's really important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me personally, with regards to what you both just addressed, I think for me personally, I find that something kind of tricky for me to wrap my head around that uh, 
well, I guess sort of the so-called Global North is responsible for the vast majority of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, um, many carbon offsetting schemes, and I think uh, that includes most tree planting campaigns. They are implemented uh, in the Global South. And I feel like that can lead to the danger that the, instead of maybe pushing for systematic changes or instead of maybe addressing uh, maybe the problematics about uh, consumption patterns uh, in certain parts of the world that you kind of say, well, you can keep on consuming, but if you buy this or that uh, different product that will uh, invest some money into a tree planting campaign, uh, your consumption kind of becomes, uh, I guess, valid or... It becomes like okay, so to keep uh, consuming, and since you both uh, you both grew up in India and you've spent uh, quite some time in in India, I guess, uh, but also in the United States, uh, I was wondering if you personally feel like uh, there is sort of a certain hypocrisy maybe there that should be that should be addressed, or uh, what you think uh, think about that? Yeah, I mean, I would like to share this like you know, really uh, fundamental exercise that I would do with uh, with undergraduate students when I was teaching, wherein like, you know, I would just like make them calculate the ecological footprints of populations in different parts of the world. And that would always come as a huge shock to these students when they would realize that how their footprints is so much bigger than like you know, people in India or Bhutan or Sri Lanka or elsewhere. And that would be like a realization that how um, the lifestyles they, they are so, so different. So I think that kind of like you know, puts into perspective the, the luxury, this aspect of like, you know, luxury uh, emissions, that how uh, these plantation activities or campaigns that we're talking about, they, they are a way to, you know, compensate for the luxury emissions that are happening in the global north, where, wherein, like, you know, as you just mentioned, there is no real incentives that are created to encourage people to change their lifestyles given that it's evident that it's their ecological footprint that is like way bigger than like, you know, places where these plantation activities are being encouraged. There's this uh, feel good factor or uh, these are attempts to just like make them not feel very guilty about their lifestyles and, and convey to them that you know, it's okay the way you're living your life as long as you pay for a tree to be planted somewhere else. So, yeah. So, so that, yeah, there's definitely a hypocrisy there it's interesting because what you just said made me think of uh, something i heard someone say recently i don't remember where but it was saying that uh, often these feel good actions they part from good intentions but the what the person was saying uh, good intentions are as necessary but uh, understanding is also just as necessary and i feel like sometimes there might be a disbalance between like a good intention but then if you're not really informed about what that action might actually do on the ground like there's a disparity that can then backfire and you might not even learn that uh, that it backfired so uh yeah 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 no absolutely i agree that the intention is good they they, they do not intend to uh cause these like injustice issues or cause livelihood deprivation and make lives of people miserable but it's just that the fact that they have not been like you know well thought through, uh, inadvertently they end up having these negative consequences. Vijay, did you want to add something? No, this is a this is a larger problem. It's a much much larger problem that you that you are talking about, and 
it's not a simple, simplistic issue, right? So when you asked about um, what can we do, that's what you guys have identified is an opportunity for capacity building, right? So in the, in the global north. So what do you want to do about these perceived notions of lack of, um, or rather the reluctance of changing carbon intensive lifestyle, easy willingness to pay for it elsewhere. So what kind of capacities are necessary to be able to change that, right? That also brings into questions um, of development, right? Is it wrong? Is it ethical for people in the global South to aspire for a better livelihood, for a better nutritious meal or a larger asset balance, right? Uh, in the bank, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's necessary to think about those things too, right? That is why these questions of trade-offs and how we transition into the next uh, low carbon economy becomes very relevant. And that is where the, the thought and creativity and imagination and effort uh, could be focused on, right? Historical injustices, reparations for it, correction for it must happen. But also current thought must take it forward uh, in terms of what actions can be done right now, um, right? So. And what you mentioned, uh, that that was kind of like an example of a uh, capacity building that could occur in the global uh, north. Do you maybe have any ideas or inputs as uh, how we could design certain uh, capacity building schemes in the north to better inform uh, people about uh, what impacts their decisions or their actions might have? Absolutely. So think about this. Um, all of these actions that you are talking about, that we are talking about as a group or as a as an entire world about tree planting programs or restoration or conservation, they all have a locality associated with it, right? Usually such communities have some institutions that help them manage that resource. There is a diversity of institutions at the very local level that will either be created as part of the programs of conservation, restoration, or tree planting, as we have seen, or there are existing institutions at the local level. How about the Global North engages with these local institutions directly to figure out how they fit into the global scheme of things, right? Currently, that, la that, that linkage is missing. So that's what the Global North can, can, can try to do, is to link up with these local level institutions, try to find out in this very specific locality what's going to happen. Because even within a plantation, I, I'm going to go back to my to the earlier NASA-funded study I spoke about. In, in these 2,000 and odd plantations, right, even within when we make a polygon, a polygon is a spatial boundary that we draw using a GPS that can then be deducted, detected by satellites, right, about their growth, about the change in leaf cover. Those things can be detected later on. When we draw that boundary, so that boundary is an administrative boundary of the forest department. That's what we draw, right? But that is still not the locality where tree planting happens. It will be a small subset within that, that polygon, within that boundary. So if you walk to a place and ask, hey, where did this tree get planted? 
it is not in like uniformly all around it is like in some small locality within a greater polygon but if you look at it from a global perspective it is just a small polygon in this one state in one country right so but there are institutions there are people living there there are communities living and managing so how about we interact with them let them bring their voice to the table right or not even the table just talk to them try to figure out what's going to happen right perhaps they want it perhaps they want more trees perhaps they just say we don't want any trees you know we just want grasses or something else right now the ability of local institutions of local people to influence this broader political economy that makes tree planting even a viable policy option is missing that needs to be corrected from the global north and that's a solution yeah and i would also like to add that you know even post implementation it's really important to have you know ground level like assessment uh, studies that includes people in that region gathering information about the impacts of these projects and creating a certain level of like you know transparency of the way these projects are playing out on the ground so the more there is the more transparency there is i think there will be uh, more ability to hold the actors who are involved in implementing these projects like accountable for their actions so i definitely also feel just to add to what vijay just said that we need more and more real like you know, ground truthing and and ground level assessment of these projects wherein the people in in those areas are involved in highlighting some of the realities of the implementation of these projects yeah and i guess uh, from my perspective i guess i feel like that's where the type of you research uh, you devia and uh, you which are doing that becomes a uh, very important and relevant because that's the type of research that will maybe go on to inform uh, policy makers and governments about about the gaps uh, the gaps in information flow the gaps in knowledge and that might hopefully then push uh, push for governments and policy makers to make a better informed decisions on how to how to design uh, projects that that could impact the local communities or how to better sort of incor incorporate uh, or better communicate uh, with with communities in other parts of the world yeah um yeah. And what yeah. you just mentioned, Tive, uh, with the sort of on the ground surveys that that can be conducted in a way that uh, in that better includes uh, the local uh, communities, um, I thought that on your website, Vijay, I saw that uh, you founded an organization that tries uh, to implement or that to include the local populations in the uh, ground surveys. Is that true? Yes. 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 Do you maybe want to say a few words here? Yeah. Yeah. It is. Um, it's not a. institution as such i mean it's not a there's no brick and mortar there's no legality or registration for this in institution it's just a group of people who came together and recognizing this need that rural people can contribute to a lot to to research which combines social and ecological aspects right because they are the interacting variable if in my mind they are the interaction because they make the interactions happen and to provide them with the training the tools uh to do that will be of not just benefit to them but to science and overall the getting at the all those outcomes right 
So what we, uh, what I tried to do was to bring together these research professionals, give it a little bit of a shake, ensure that they are used wisely, with fairness, with respect, and they are paid fairly for their labors. And they are recognized in outputs of research. So some of the prestigious journals that have published our work include these field-level researchers as authors of those papers. And this is not the first time that's hap- that it's happening. People do it routinely. And there are many, many more researchers like me who have done it already to a much better uh, effect, right? So what we try to do is when, you, when, we, when we are working with people in the ground, you want to do the best for them too, because they're giving up so much of their time, their contextual knowledge to us who are learning, who are new to that area, who just have all these theories goofing around in our head, right? We want to be able to apply that. And they are the ones who help us apply that knowledge in our minds, translate it to to that particular context where they live and work. So this organization helps to do that. And this network of individuals is just, we just bring in more youth and women, we train them if they're interested uh, in research methods, in professional skill sets, uh, in English language, so that they can be hired and employed in other similar projects, not just ours, but they have this overall ability to do well for themselves. Yeah, and I would like to add to that, any just my experience of doing fieldwork at the time of pandemic, like right when the cases started rising, both in India as well as Nepal, there was this like you know, drastic lockdown that was imposed. And one of the outcomes of that lockdown was, or uh, the implications of that lockdown was that, you know, social interaction it was very difficult for people to like, you know, have this like you no know, one-on-one or face-to-face interaction. So we had to transition to doing uh, remote data collection, like collecting, you know, uh, data over like the you know, phone or like using other digital media. And although I've always been like an you know, appreciative of local field stuff, I think that experience was further reinforced my, my belief in how important these people are in just like gaining the ground reality. And I'm actually writing a paper on that where I'm talking about the interaction that I had with the household uh, members was in no way as in-depth as it was when our, our field staff, who were the local residents of the area when they had. And then I got really curious as to like, you know, why was that so? I mean, um, uh, I have this training of qualitative data collection and ethnography and all those things. So I was using all these like, you know, skill sets yet in a way like, you know, these, these local people were more advanced in, in collecting like rich information and one of the, the, the clear reasons was this ability to, to connect at the emotional level by these people. And um, so I'm using this, this lens of critical reflexivity, wherein when you're engaging with these, uh, with these household members, you are very mindful about your identity and the way you frame the questions and, and, and the way you ask follow-up questions. So you're like way more sensitive and, and it's not, Saying I'm not trying to say that I'm not sensitive, but I think their level of emotional maturity when they're engaging with people in their own community is way higher. And that resulted in like a more uh, richer and, and deeper 
uh, information about so that for this project, we're trying to understand, you know, COVID impacts and, and the way people were coping with consequences of the lockdown. And, and through these, these remote interviews that the field staff had done, I think it, we were able to gain a more sort of holistic or a fuller sense of the impacts. Yeah, which I don't think us or, you know, at least I can speak for myself. I don't think it would have been possible if I were doing it on my own. So I definitely we owe them a whole lot. Yeah, that's so, that's really interesting. I find mm-hmm. it very, very inspiring. Mm-hmm. I guess in a sense, that would be quite a humbling experience as well that to realize, well, you're trained as a researcher, you've got this entire skill set kind of at yeah. your disposition, but the, each community has its own its own ways, its own values, its own way of communicating, and someone who's from that community uh, yeah. might be able to speak to the heart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially like in remote interviews where you're not like, there's so much that you can uh, trust that you can establish when you're talking to somebody one-on-one. And all of that gets limited when you're doing it remotely. I think uh, these remote interactions or the COVID, doing research at the time of COVID was just like a huge realization that the just the importance of the the local field stuff and maybe coming around a full circle to how we were talking earlier how local communities um, should be included uh, to avoid sort of the limitations and pitfalls of a reforestation or afforestation uh, projects uh, from both of your experience do you feel like by giving more power to the local uh, communities to engage also in the research. Have you had any experiences in which you felt like that contributed uh, to projects uh, being more successful? Um, I don't know about successful or not, but research has consistently shown and I have found similarly in my areas of research that when people are given a greater degree of autonomy to make decisions, uh, when when people have the ability to say no, when the, when people have ability to shape what they get through either like distributional effects or who gets what, it leads to much better uh, outcomes for individuals and forests that are involved. Uh, whether it is successful depends on the programmatic approach, um, what the program goals are, and how it overlays whether it met that goal or not. But when it comes to individual impacts, it will. I've seen that it it has certainly impacted them positively. Uh, if people have greater autonomy, ability to say no, ability to question authority and hold them accountable, and giving power sounds great, but try taking power from somebody who has it. It's pretty pretty difficult. That's the reality of the world, and uh, giving power has to take much more. Uh, thought about who wields that power to for benefit and it can be misconstrued so easily that this is what power should be like or what it, what forms it should take so uh, when we're talking about those things uh, we need to be very specific about what forms of power we are talking about what rights uh, what accountability what types of uh, um, decision-making abilities that we are shaping through our actions, right? So a very fine way of looking at it will, will go a long way. And we have seen that happening over and over again, even in development projects, 
uh, women's empowerment through self-help groups and finances, women's groups who have managed commun- uh, community forests or groups of villagers who have come together on their own to manage forests and lakes and water bodies, and then groups of people who share uh, livelihood, uh, which means they have shared understandings of the risks that are involved in their livelihood, such as small farmers or traditional grazers, or there can be a whole host of people who are coming together to, to do that and to enable them any activity, any program, any policy that tries to do that um, will see much, much better likelihood of, of getting at their objectives. Yeah, and I wanted to add to that. Like you know, um, there is always this aspect of patronizing when we think about oh, we should give them power or we should give them rights, and and this is something that I became more cognizant and sensitive about, like especially in my research on implementation of Forest Rights Act in Central India. Uh, wherein very early on, I realized that when we talk about Forest Rights Act, especially of the forest dwellers, nobody has the power or the ability to give rights to these people. These people already have the rights. It's important to recognize that their rights exist. And, and I think like similarly, like in this narrative of like, no power, it creates this power in, the, uh, you know, kind of like hierarchy or imbalance when we think about, oh, somebody has to give power to somebody. It implies that they are like poor and they are vulnerable and they are marginalized and let's give them some power. And so, I mean, I, I know it's, it's, there's a fine line, but I think there has to be like, no certain shift so that these narratives, they don't come off as patronizing and it has to be given that or understood that, you know, these abilities, they, they exist in the communities. And the, the reality is that oftentimes these communities are not able to articulate or voice through proper channels. So I think like, and that's where like in these local level or ground level studies, they become very relevant where the realities of how, like, even though these people, they know what they want, there's no proper channel to voice the concern. And then talking about the success stories, uh, Carolina, uh, again, in the context where I was working in Central India, through, you know, mobilization of the community and the fact that, you know, they were more aware of their rights, they have been able, these communities have been able to challenge, you know, mining uh, activities, and they've been pushed back against, uh, uh, plantation activities in their forest lands and use rights as a way to to challenge all these activities and it won't have been possible if they weren't aware but the fact that you know they they increasingly like with time and they became aware of their rights and and how they can exercise their rights they were able to challenge and, and hold these actors accountable for their action and also like you no know, demand for compensation in case uh, those actors went ahead so in one of my case studies uh, that I did I talked about that how there was this like you know power company that laid these power transmission lines across community forests and uh, the communities they kept fighting but they couldn't do anything but I think over time they just gained so much uh, because they were like this they remained persistent so they although they couldn't stop the power line from going through their their forests but then they were able to demand for a compensation and and you know, it's, it's not easy for the communities to succeed at that also. And, and these case studies, although they're very small, they, they play a very important role because they inspire other like you know, neighboring communities. So they have this like you know, positive spillover effect. And, and over time, we've seen that, you know, how this particular like you know, village, it's a very small village in central uh, India, 
how that has served as an example for other neighboring villages that had also been like you know struggling with uh, just like trying to stop these powerful actors from you know misusing their lands and and undermining their rights yeah i think that's incredibly uh, insightful and important what both of you uh, just mentioned and i think also maybe with regards to what you mentioned about um, power dynamics or giving power i think it's really important what you said that uh, people already have power and it's more about respecting or acknowledging uh, that power not about uh, giving power and maybe if we just think about that uh, differently also in the global north if we think about it as well they have power and we just need to respect that, that power that might be a change of thought that can lead uh, to an, a new understanding of uh, or a better understanding of situations and I guess uh, maybe if you imply that you're giving power maybe I'm wondering if, if you're not then also implying that in a way you've taken power in the first place I mean think about it there are clearly people without power there are powerless people right and those people who don't have power at least in the way that we think of power lack that recognition uh, lack that um they have not been acknowledged they have not been provided some of these uh or included in some of these procedural aspects of 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 these restoration programs or plantation programs right in india the joint forest management uh, that i started out my career in was started in 1990 it's not that old right it's not like we've been doing participatory research for 200 years or so no it's 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 fairly new and there are a lot of challenges when it comes to increasing participation too and when it comes to increasing um, some of these acknowledgement of powerlessness right that is something that that programs and policies should do actively but um it is it is not something that it should be given or it's a philosophical stance that everybody has it agreed with people with no money women uh people belonging to different class and castes or different regions uh people living in certain areas like in refugee camps or internally developed uh, displaced groups they are vastly powerless when it comes to participating in these discussions uh that matter for their life and livelihood and the forests and the land right so identification of some of these vulnerabilities will will also help in channelizing and making this this way or the governance to include such people and in turn make them or rather provide them with abilities to deal with situations on their own right and what we find in um, in this recent paper that we are working on uh, which is very close to publication is um, plantations which have continuous participation um which means over the project's study uh people have continued to participate in various ways they have either been involved in choosing species or they are part of some membership group or they have interacted with officials or they have just been part of this plantation program or deforestation or some type of elected local uh, membership group such communities have a better chance of leading to 
better uh, outcomes when it comes to tree planting activity. So then the question becomes, what is continuous participation? What is continuity? What is participation? And, and what is it that sustains continuous participation? And if you can identify what that, what the determinants of continuous participation are, can we go and examine it in other places so that we can have robust studies that will pinpoint how to make participation much better, effective, equitable, right? So those are some of the questions that, that research still needs to address. That's what we are working on. Yeah, yeah thank you so much uh, for sharing that. Yeah, I guess it's almost uh, 4.30. <laughs> Um, so I guess we should slowly be wrapping up. Uh, I guess, although I feel like there's a lot of uh, a lot of just things I mm -hmm. could still be discussing with you because it's been a very interesting sure. conversation. Um, to wrap up, uh, I was wondering if both of you still have um, something you want to address that you feel like we've been neglecting uh, so far in the interview that you feel uh, is relevant. I think I wanted to. Uh... Just to uh, be clear, I wanted to mention that the fact that we are critical about tree plantation is that does not mean that we don't love trees. <laughs> we love forests, we love green spaces. I think we're just critical about the way these programs are implemented. So um, yeah, that is often the, the criticism that uh, we face that, oh, the so you don't like uh, tree plantation, so that means you know, you don't like forests, but that's that's not really true. I think we we are more sort of like you know, critical about the way these larger tree plantation campaigns are carried out. Uh, but we all are, are huge admirers and uh, and appreciators of forests and trees. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> yeah, and you well, you care about, a lot about protecting and uh, yeah. regenerating forests. So I think that shows that uh, yeah. you love trees and forests. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Vijay? Yeah, I like forests too. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's not about our personal beliefs for me, right? So um, if there's a movement, if there's a concerted movement, which is pitched as a solution for many, many things, like a win-win-win-win situation, win for climate, win for people, win for land, win for biodiversity, it kind of seems too good to be true. And we've been taught that, you know, if it's too good to be true, to something you, wrong. Let's think about yeah. let's think about it a little bit more, right? Yeah. And um, perhaps parts of it is still true. Perhaps tree planting is the solution for some parts of it. Perhaps not for all. But when there is this whole scale buy-in through all the charismatic leaders, leaders whom who have been elected or who are the representatives of several groups of people, right? then it begins to make us as scientists a little bit more uh, careful in assessing the impacts, right? And that's what we are trying to get at. And that's what this paper talks about. Like, it's not all bad, but then we have to think about these pitfalls. If not, there is countervailing evidence that shows that there are pitfalls for tree planting, that we can go wrong and go around in a big way if you don't think about these. And that's the effort of this paper. And the, and the amount of conversation that it has generated is so 
heartwarming. It's it's like I'm I'm like thrilled at the amount of conversation that this paper and some of the other papers written by other scholars and by us also has generated. There is a very vibrant scholastic uh, media based um, across the board. There is a lot. There is a very vibrant conversation going on, which tells me as a scientist that that conversations can lead to to some problem solution creating right it's we could do something about it but there is also uh, another side to it where such science continues to be produced which overpowers tree planting as one of the main solutions right so we still need to understand what the impetus for that is and Perhaps uh, it will help me understand it better as well as to why is it that we're pushing it that hard from the other side. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think there is a very kind of hopeful and for me positive uh, message in there. Yeah, so I still have two final questions, I guess, uh, to wrap up. I'll ask uh, each one of those uh, to both of you and uh, and you can answer. The first uh, question would be, uh, which three books or documentaries could you recommend to listeners if they want to learn more about the topics uh, we've been discussing? Uh, you mean like, the, uh, <laughs> this is a really tough question uh, <laughs> it, it, for the general public and for yeah. everybody? Yeah, more yeah. for the general public, yeah. Okay, I think I might need to take a break and think about it. Sure, yeah. Divya, Divya already has answers. Yeah, I did or not just one or two book. books that you found, wow, that was really inspiring and that shaped kind of uh, the way I think about the, some of these questions. Uh. Yeah, to be honest, I mean, uh, I think I do not really have any uh, recommendations that talk about, like about books or documentaries that talk about the the pitfalls or the drawbacks of these like you know plantation campaigns but then you know my thinking in general about you know the marginalizations that are created in the process of techno forest governance or natural resource governance has been shaped by a lot of like literature in form of like books and you know published articles or even like you know popular media articles and i think a lot of literature especially like you know around um social movements has been inspiring, like, you know, for example, this book by Amita Bhaveskar in the Belly of River, wherein, which is like, you know, an outcome of her work that she did in during her PhD, wherein she looked at the, the social movement around Narmada Bachaangulan, so Narmada's river, and they were planning to build this, uh, this dam, and there were a lot of, like, you know, movement around, uh, you know, around that dam construction so that was like, you know, really inspiring. And also like, you know, I, I grew up in this state which also has a, 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 an environmental movement that serves the legacy. So it's called the Chipko movement. So uh, there are some like you know, local authors who've written about in the local language, like in Hindi and in Bahari, they've written about the Chipko movement and that strikes a chord in me. And um, and then also uh, reading some of the literature, some of the works about the role of state and the role of like the bureaucracy has also been like, you know, instrumental. So there's this like you know, seminal work by James Scott, uh, wherein he talks about the role of state in you know, just like governance in general. So uh, so I, I think the, the list, I can go on about how there are like so many diverse, you know, sources in different forms 
that have uh, helped shape the way I think. And I think the the fact that they resonate with me is because like I that I do have my own personal set of values. So I do I do believe in in pushing for for research that is inclusive, that acknowledges you know all different kinds of stakeholders, and also sort of pushes for for voicing you know different concerns and and creating more transparency and accountability. So uh, so I think I, I naturally gravitate towards. Uh, the writings that help me reinforce that value, but it's also like you know interesting to to read the counter narratives. So yeah, I think uh, it's it's hard to sort of pick uh, specific works, but I think it's it's been a diverse combination of writings that have influenced the way I I think and shaped my my sort of like you know thinking about these different issues. Yeah, that's a a good answer. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. What about you, you VJ? Yeah, I thought about it. Uh, I got two books for your readers. They're they're by people who's whom I've learned a lot from and who are phenomenal scholars. And they bring in perhaps some of the most interdisciplinary thought in these two books that they've written, uh, which is very approachable. One of them is a little bit dense, perhaps. Um, so your readers may read it later on. Maybe they can just read the abstract and, and choose to read it or not. But the first book, which is by Paul Robbins, he's at the University of Wisconsin. He's written a book called uh, Lawn People. That's like the lawn, like a, like a grass lawn. In, so it's a lawn people where uh, um, there are so many interesting facets that are brought about about how grass has made people. And if you want to think about how trees are making us in, into the people that we are, uh, that's a good book to think about uh, from perspective of grasses and how it shapes humans and how we interact with grasses, right? Uh, through lawn people, that's the first one. And it's a very well-written book. Uh, I could recommend it to anybody. And the second book, a little bit more dense, is from um, Arun Agarwal. Uh, he's also a, a phenomenal thinker about social ecological systems and uh, the governance aspects of political uh, aspects in, in, social in social ecology of forests in general. Uh, his book called Environmentality charts how the change in social behaviors in how aspects of power information are brought in when we think about conservation and protection and use of forests. So those two books will be uh, a pretty good starter for any of your readers, the long people and environmentality. Yeah, thank you so much for those uh, recommendations. Um, yeah, I will link the recommendations also on the website so listeners can find uh, can find your suggestions there. Um, so my last question would be, could each one of you describe one act of kindness that really brightened your week? I mean, so I recently uh, adopted a dog. Oh, that's cute. She's my first pet. I've never had a pet before. I've, you know, I would watch my my friends and my family's like you know, pets, and uh, but then I've never owned, like never had my own pet. So it's just like a little way. So um, she would follow wherever I go, and <laughs> <That's> so sweet. <laughs> And just like when I turn around and it just happens without fail, like every time, like she would just like follow wherever I go. So it, it just cheers me up. It's 
something that always like brightens, never fails to brighten up my my moment. And I have several moments like that. Uh, could you repeat the question? Uh, what's one act of kindness that really brightened your week? Oh, okay. Um, oh, lots of them. Uh, I'm full. My, my life is full of people who are kind to me. But there's one person whom I would like to give a shout out to, which is um, the person who cleans my street uh, here. In India, I don't know. I think it's a general problem, but especially so in my hometown in Bangalore, that wherever people find a pole or a tree, they, they, they throw trash. It's like, uh, even though there's like a bin or the rules around it, like segregate wet waste from dry waste, they don't care. They'll just come and dump it there. So at certain points during the week, there are like huge piles of garbage, like trash that are like, you can see piled up, right? And if I were her, I would just be so frustrated, right? But she isn't. She'd like clean it up. And when I talk to her, she has this beaming smile. And I'm like, that's so, that's so kind of you to like, you know, clean all these things and yet have a smile when I say, hey, how's it going, right? Um, I, I really appreciate her work and many more informal workers like that all around uh, India. So, so, yeah, thanks. Thanks to her. Thank you for sharing that. That's very, uh, that's very, that's nice to hear. Thank you. So I really enjoyed the, the, our talk and I'm sorry it's taken, uh, it's taken a bit more time than, uh, than we thought, but uh, thank you so much for, for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Carolina, for engaging with us. Thanks, Divya, for, for having me and thanks, Carolina, too. Um, yeah. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this conversation with Divya Gupta and Vijay Ramprasad. You can find their book recommendations as well as a few of the articles they mentioned, um, which highlight the science behind the concepts we've been talking about during the podcast on www.rethinkerspodcast.ch. If you're interested in learning more about the intersection of ecology and the political sciences and social sciences, I can also highly recommend you to listen to the In Common podcast, which is co-hosted by Divya Gupta. It's become one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, and you can also find a link to the In Common podcasts on the Rethinkers podcast website. That's www.rethinkerspodcast.ch slash episodes. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please do help spread the word by sharing it with your friends and family and by following the Rethinkers podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. If you want to leave a review, that would be amazing as well and that would really help spread the word. You can also find the podcast on Instagram under rethinkerspodcast.ch and on Instagram I'll keep you posted about the release of new episodes. And as always, you're more than welcome to get in touch with me if you have any comments or feedback or suggestions or just wishes on topic you'd enjoy learning more about. So thank you again for listening and have a lovely day.